I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Tiffany Bates. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. This week, we're talking about Clarence Thomas's interview with Laura Ingram, the Supreme Court's first opinions of the season, and we'll interview former Scalia clerk Ed Whalen. So before we get into the substance of Justice Thomas's interview with Laura Ingram, we have a judicial update, some good news from the Senate. Tiffany, do you want to tell us about it? Yes, excellent news. The Senate has confirmed five judges recently. Amy Barrett to the Seventh Circuit, Joan Larson to the Sixth Circuit, Allison I to the Tenth Circuit, Steven Osbibas to the Third Circuit, and Trevor McFadden to the D.C. District Court. All of these judges are fantastic, and we're very excited to report on their future opinions once they're sworn in and start um, writing. And big thank you to our friends in the Senate for getting, getting these guys through. Yeah, keep up the good work, Senators McConnell and Grassley. So Clarence Thomas was recently interviewed by Laura Ingram on Fox News. She clerked for Thomas in his second year on the court back in 1992, and uh, they covered a lot of big topics in just 20 minutes. So first off, she asked about what the court was like without Justice Scalia. And and Justice Thomas said uh, there's a big emptiness to it and that Scalia had a way of filling up the room, um, which I, I can imagine. She also asked Thomas about the rumors that Justice Gorsuch is ruffling the feathers of some of his fellow justices. And Thomas said, I don't have any feathers. That's the most Clarence Thomas answer of the whole interview. It was very funny. Thomas said that Gorsuch is a good man and that he has no idea what these people are talking about. Laura Ingram also asked him to describe his judicial philosophy. And I love this. He said, it's get it right and make it accessible. A good way, you know, a good philosophy to have. Yeah, to get it right and make it accessible to regular people. He said, you reason to the outcome. uh, You never justify your way to the outcome. Uh, Laura Ingram also asked about his very contentious confirmation hearing, which was back in 1991. Uh, at the hearing, he said, no job is worth what I've been through. And he said that the, the Senate could could never give him back his good name, could never restore his family, uh, the damage that had been done to his family. And so Laura asked, was it worth it? And his response was that, I think we are called to do things. And I think clearly Justice Thomas was called to be on the Supreme Court. And it has been a great thing for our country that, that he has been on, on the court. And Laura played some of the clips from his hearing, and they're very powerful. Um, So we definitely uh, commend them uh, to you. Definitely. She also asked a little bit about current events. She asked Justice Thomas what his take is on the current controversy over Confederate monuments being taken down across the country. And what he had to say was that people seem uh, to not be able to have opinions that make other people uncomfortable these days. Uh, And he said, you know, we have to think about what binds us. What do we all have in common anymore? He said, when I was a kid, even as we had laws that held us apart, there were things that we held dear and that we all had in common. He said, we have the pluribus, but what's our unum? And, and Justice Thomas said his response to what's our unum is our constitution, our history, our culture, and our principles. These are all things worth defending, and that's what keeps you going. So it was a, a, a very um, interesting interview, some insights into Justice Thomas's mind, and you can watch it all. I think it's all available on YouTube. So the Supreme Court issued its first three opinions this week. Um, The first two were per curiam opinions, which are unsigned and unanimous. Both of these opinions reversed circuit court decisions under the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act. Um, So this act says that a state prisoner is entitled to federal habeas relief only if the state trial court 
um, if the state trial court's adjudication of his claim was contrary to or involved in unreasonable application of clearly established federal law as defined by the Supreme Court. So these opinions aren't unusual. The the court reprimands the circuit courts a lot in this area, mostly for saying something is clearly established federal law as defined by the Supreme Court when it's not. Yeah, um, the, the Ninth Circuit has uh, had many smackdowns over the years on, on this point. Yes, although the Sixth Circuit may be getting close to, to overtaking them. So I had my interns um, take a very cursory look on Westlaw. I haven't independently verified these numbers, so don't take them to the bank without checking. Um, but they found 28 cases in the last decade where the Supreme Court reversed circuit court um, opinions in this area. Even more unsurprising, 75% of those decisions were out of the sixth and ninth circuits. So in the first one of these opinions um, this week, I won't get into the facts of the case, but the Ninth Circuit decided that specific performance of a lower sentence was constitutionally required when a state court permitted an amendment to a criminal complaint. Um, so the the key point here is that to support this idea that this was clearly established federal law, the Ninth Circuit cited one Supreme Court case, Ninth Circuit precedent, a Washington State Supreme Court decision, a law review article, and Professor Orrin Kerr's treatise on criminal procedure. Yeah, uh, Professor Orrin Kerr is definitely a smart guy, but I don't think his treatise is clearly established federal law according to the Supreme Court. Yes, and and the court agreed holding that law reviews don't count as clearly established federal law. Um, I'll, I'll read the quote, what they said, because it's, um, I just think it's funny. They said, as we have repeatedly pointed out, circuit precedent does not constitute clearly established federal law as determined by the Supreme Court, nor, of course, do state court decisions, treatises, or law review articles. <laughs> um, it's kind of ridiculous that the court had to tell the Ninth Circuit this. But, Once again. <laughs> um, whatever. Um, so the second per curiam decision this week involved a man who was convicted of murdering a police officer in Alabama. Uh, while he was awaiting execution, um, this man suffered several strokes. So he petitioned for habeas, um, saying that he had become incompetent to be executed. And during the proceedings, experts testified that um, the prisoner could not remember the sequence of events. Um, so that he couldn't remember the murder, his arrest. Um, the trial or any of the details, but he did understand, um, according to the experts, that he was tried and imprisoned for murder and that Alabama was going to put him to death for a punishment um, for that crime. So because of this, the district court uh, denied his petition, but the 11th Circuit reversed, and then the Supreme Court reversed them, holding that no Supreme Court precedent has clearly established that a prisoner is incompetent to be executed because of a failure to remember actually committing the crime as distinct from a failure to rationally understand um, the concepts of the crime, that he committed it, and that he was tried, and um, execution was his punishment. Um, so this is notable um, for several reasons, including uh, because Justice Ginsburg, joined by Breyer and Sotomayor, uh, wrote a separate concurrence writing that the law did um, indeed preclude consideration of, um, you know, the big underlying question because there was already no, you know, clearly established federal law. But they said that the question of whether a state may administer the death penalty to a person whose disability leaves him without memory of committing his crime uh, quote, warrants a full airing. So I think um, that was essentially inviting, uh, you know, lawyers to bring one of these cases in the future. 
Yeah, and Justice Breyer, I think you're going to get into uh, his separate concurrence as well. But he has, for for several years now, been asking uh, for for a case uh, to consider the constitutionality of capital punishment. So I think this is uh, another example where he's uh, he's saying, "Please, uh, Supreme Court bar, send me a case." Yes, and he definitely did that again. Um, this time he wrote a separate concurrence, um, even separate from the one he joined with Ginsburg, um, writing to once again call into question, quote, the unconscionably long periods of time that prisoners often spend on death row awaiting execution. So the Supreme Court also issued its first signed opinion of the term in a case called Hammer versus. Neighborhood Housing Services of Chicago. This case was argued in uh, in the October sitting on October 10th, and Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, wrote the opinion for the court, and it was a unanimous opinion, so there were no dissents or concurrences. So uh, what what happened is this is a um, appellate procedure uh, case. Fascinating stuff. Yes, it's you might call it frapping important um, <laughs> for frap. <laughs> The court vacated and remanded the Seventh Circuit's decision uh, dismissing an appeal for being um, outside of the statutory deadline for filing. So what happened was a petitioner sought to appeal a district court motion for summary judgment in favor of the respondent in the case, and this was in an an employment discrimination suit. The district court granted her request for a two-month extension to file a notice of appeal uh, because her lawyer did not want to continue uh, representing her anymore, and she needed to engage a new lawyer. So the appeals court subsequently dismissed the appeal because it said the federal rules of appellate procedure limit extensions to 30 days. But uh, this week, the Supreme Court explained that the appeals court was conflating the requirements of a a federal statute that governs uh, extensions and uh, and jurisdictional limitations uh, and and these federal rules, which are – which are court-made limitations that that uh, may be waived or forfeited in, in a case, but do not prevent a court from um, from hearing the underlying action. So the the Supreme Court sent the case back to the appeals court to decide whether the respondent in this case had forfeited its its objection to the extension, among other things. Thrilling stuff. Very thrilling um, stuff. <laughs> yeah, and so I'll note that uh, Justice Ginsburg is typically the first. The first member of the court to release opinions. She has um, apparently is notorious for her <laughs> her quick turnaround times. Yeah, so she was first out of the gate in this one, uh, and it was uh, a thrilling. Uh, appellate procedure case. We're pleased to have with us today Ed Whalen. He's the president of the Ethics and Public Policy Center, a prolific blogger at the National Review Online, and editor of a new book, Scalia Speaks. Welcome to SCOTUS 101, Ed. Thank you, Elizabeth. So why did you decide to compile Justice Scalia's speeches in your new book? Well, it was at the invitation of Mrs. Scalia um, late last winter or early spring. Uh, She invited me and her son, Chris, my co-editor, to uh, compile a book of speeches. Frankly, at the time, we had no idea what the universe of speeches would be and weren't even sure there'd be the makings of a book. And we were both quickly um, amazed to discover this treasure trove of speeches he'd, been, he'd given over the years. We had lots of different um, databases, so to speak, paper piles, electronic files. It took a, a, a long while to sort through, but it was really fun because we kept making discovery after discovery. And uh, we soon figured out that the challenge was going to be what to exclude, uh, not what to include. 
Um, so did you learn anything new about Justice Scalia in the process of editing this book? Well, I think I knew the justice pretty well um, beyond uh, his jurisprudence, knew him as Antonin Scalia the man. That said, uh, you certainly discover what a gregarious man he was, what a capacity for friendship he had. I think in many ways, um, one of the most touching aspects of the book consists of the eulogies at the end, uh, tributes he wrote to uh, friends who uh, had died, uh, in which he reflected on the qualities in, in them that he admired. And you put enough of these together, you suddenly learn a lot about the person who's who's offering the tribute. And of course, it's impossible, um, for me at least, to read those without um, thinking about our, our great loss of him. You see that same quality uh, for friendship, of course, in his um, famous friendship with Justice Ginsburg. Justice Ginsburg wrote a beautiful foreword uh, for the book. And the book also includes, I think, a very funny roast that uh, Justice Scalia um, delivered of um, then Judge Ginsburg on the 10th anniversary of her time on the D.C. Circuit. Uh, but I think you see this uh, this man who enjoyed life, uh, a man of faith and family, someone who uh, just loved to to uh, to meet people, who someone who had a very comprehensive, coherent view of what it meant to be an American, and uh, really dedicated uh, his life to helping to sustain the American experiment. So, if you had to pick one, what, what's your favorite of the speeches? <laughs> Oh, there are so many. Uh, I suppose the one that I'll, uh, one that I'll identify pr- primarily because it was so unexpected was a speech that he gave that begins something like, I am very, very often asked, to what do I attribute my well-known athletic prowess? <laughs> uh, this is a, a speech that we have under the title Games and Sports. And he proceeds to give a charming and very funny account of the games and sports that he played as a boy in Queens. Uh, in the uh, 1940s and 1950s, you know, discussing the rules of stickball and stoopball, but also discussing the the culture, so to speak, back then when uh, there weren't soccer moms because soccer wasn't around and no one drove. Uh, uh, but there are so many speeches here that uh, I think uh, uh, dazzle and delight. Um, so that's just an example of one. So changing topics a little bit, you spent a lot of time rebuffing Seventh Circuit Judge Richard Richard Posner's view of the law and, um, you know, critiquing his books. So tell us why you think it's important to do this. And also, when he announced what, that he was retiring, what was the celebration in the Whalen household like that night? <laughs> was the champagne flowing? Uh, well, look, I— um, identify uh, Judge Posner's errors only when they occur. Now, that just happens to be quite often, so I have been uh, (laughs) uh, busy in recent years um, responding uh, to him. Uh, Look, Judge Posner offers um, a uh, what he calls a pragmatic view of judging. Pragmatic turns out to mean that the law can mean whatever uh, Judge Posner thinks it ought to mean, and he's uh, made clear that Opinions can be right in their time and wrong in other times, and the law is really just an instrument of of uh, his will or his judgment about uh, consequences. Uh, he uh, obviously has um, earned influence as an academic, and I think he's uh, traded on that reputation for some of his uh, views on the law, and, and um, which I think are um, much less uh, coherent and compelling. 
he's actually seems to be writing a lot less now that he's that he's left the bench. So I'm not necessarily uh, uh, celebrating that he's no longer on the court, though I do think it's a wonderful thing for the Seventh Circuit to have had Judge Posner step down and to have had a new judge in uh, Notre Dame law professor Amy Coney Barrett. So there was no love lost between Judge Posner and Justice Scalia. But what can you tell us about Justice Scalia's relationships with his fellow justices? Oh, well, I think Justice Scalia had, um, you know, good relations of, of, of different sorts with the various justices. Obviously, in any group of people, there are going to be uh, people uh, whom you are more inclined to befriend and others who, you know, maybe the connections aren't quite there. But again, in Justice Scalia's case, I think the the um, what people might have expected um, isn't what happened. He's very, very close to Justice Ginsburg. He was very fond of um, Elena Kagan even before she joined the court and uh, worked to develop that friendship, uh, including taking her on uh, hunting and fishing trips. <laughs> of course, uh, he had a, a real love for, for Clarence Thomas. You know, there's so many. Uh, I, I, th- I think Justice Scalia had this capacity to uh, admire the good qualities uh, in others uh, and um, befriend them for those qualities, notwithstanding, uh, obviously, that um, the major disagreements he had uh, w- with various people. So you write a regular feature for NRO's bench memos called This Day in Liberal Judicial Activism. Can you tell us about why you started this and perhaps what's the worst decision that you've profiled? Well, I started this years ago. In part, uh, I was asked to uh, just focus attention on the crazy cases from the left. Look, there's a lot of, um, of, of criticism, some of it uh, reasonable, of, uh, of conservative judging. Um, as Justice Scalia liked to say, the real question um, uh, is, um, you know, he wouldn't have to show originalism is perfect. You just have to show that it's better than the alternative. And I think to focus on the um, many flaws of the alternative is worthwhile. Uh, so, uh, yeah, week in, week out, day in, day out, I um, highlight uh, crazy rulings uh, from the past. And I've got to tell you, um, there's so many of them every year uh, when it comes around. And I think, wow, they really did that. It surprises me still. <laughs> so, so some of the things they do. I think it's too easy to, um, to accept, oh, the, the court has ruled X. It's done. That's the way it is. Uh, I think that uh, view um, partakes of the myth of judicial supremacy. I think it's important to fight that. And one way to fight that is just, I think, to continue to expose and where warranted um, you know, ridicule um, uh, a lot of the crazy rulings. As to what's the worst of the worst, oh, there's so many different dimensions. <laughs> you know, you could say most brazen, most absurd. Uh, uh, you, you could have top contenders in a whole host of categories. You know, I think that uh, in many ways, uh, the, the ruling that I would put at the top is uh, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. They uh, decided in 1992, the year I was clerking for Justice Scalia, actually, um, which not not only um, declined to overturn the gross error of Roe versus Wade, but compounded it and did so with this, you know, grandiose misconception of the role of the court, uh, the, uh, the the role of stare decisis, the infamous passage, which I um, often get a little wrong because it's so zany. But you know, <laughs> at the heart of liberty is the ability to define the concept of one's own existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. The sweet mystery of life, as Justice Scalia used to call it. Yes. Um, you know, the, the sort of the, the, the fortune cookie that devoured constitutional law. <laughs> um, but there are so many uh, opinions, um, large and small, that I think um, 
reflect that if you um, abandon originalism and textualism, you're just making it up, and uh, there's there's no constraint on the, the wackiness that can be achieved. Some of our libertarian friends advocate what they call judicial engagement. Can you tell us your thoughts about this movement? Well, I think that judicial engagement um, is a rather empty label. It seems to have been adopted as an effort to launder the term judicial activism. Uh, look, uh, I agree with uh, many folks on the, on, uh, in the libertarian uh, camp that the first principle of constitutional interpretation ought to be originalism. Uh, where I divide with some of them is, is what happens when originalism uh, fails to yield a sufficiently clear answer. Uh, there are some who will adopt essentially a presumption of unconstitutionality. I think that's incompatible um, with the very foundations of judicial review. And uh, my main beef about the term judicial engagement, first of all, whenever I hear that, I always think, well, when's the wedding? Um, <laughs> um, but um, I think it's uh, a dodge. It's a fail failure to um, – to uh, try to justify a result through um, ordinary methods of interpretation. It's an effort to put a big uh, thumb on the scale. Um, so, uh, yeah, look, you know, arsonists would prefer to ban the word arson and just call everything fire building. So there are proponents of judicial activism who, you know, are trying to get rid of the word uh, judicial activism. Um, uh, I think precisely because it's so effective in stigmatizing um, lawless decisions by judges. So can you tell us what's your favorite memory of Justice Scalia? Oh, wow, that's tough. Um, he attended my wedding, and it was uh, wonderful to have him there and just uh, think, see him partake in the, 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 the joy of the event. But, um, you know, I would often see him in, in family um, settings. I remember having a, you know, Thanksgiving dinner and Easter dinner at, 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 at his home the year I clerked. I can't say there's a single moment that really stands out. Uh, Look, Justice Scalia um, was, had a uh, delightful was a delightful person. He, you know, he he had his moods. He had what you know he might have called a Latin temperament. His you know highs and lows, and could um, you know be impatient and then uh, blow past that. No, I just um, I'm just so so honored to have been able to 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 uh, to have had the privilege of working for him, and now to be able to uh, help sustain his legacy um, through this book. So if you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would you pick and what would you talk about? Well, I suppose I might pick a handful of the current ones and persuade them why they ought to step down. <laughs> uh, um, you know, I think uh, Chief Justice Marshall would be a wonderful person to have a conversation with. And I think I might just uh, tell him, can you believe the way they have, that they have uh, taken and twisted your uh, narrow concept of judicial review and tried to turn it into this crazy myth of judicial supremacy um, and, and can you you know look at how um, these provisions are, are being interpreted now you know maybe you should go back in your time machine and and uh, foreclose some of that um, <laughs> but uh, you know it's certainly be great to um, to have another conversation with Justice Scalia as well I mean I think um, uh, one of the many things that um, I think was so um, grief-inducing for so many of us about his death is that it happened um, so suddenly. Um, you know, no one really had a chance to say goodbye. So, um, and again, you see in one of his uh, tributes at the end of his book, he says the same thing about a friend of his that he he didn't know this person was ill and didn't have a chance to say goodbye. Um, so, uh, you know, look, I think there's a lesson in there um, for all of us. 
Thanks for joining us, Ed. So we'll wrap up with a round of Supreme Trivia Scalia edition, where we're going to try to stump our guest, Ed Whalen. Now, I'll let you know that some of these questions came from other former Scalia clerks and one member of the Scalia family. Yeah, we did some real, real digging here <laughs> to try to stump you. Um, I will question. say that I'm much better at, uh, I think, baseball trivia uh, <laughs> than, than I will be at Scalia trivia. But uh, so That's not what we heard from the other former clerks. <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll see. This could be embarrassing. First question. What is the one case Justice Scalia argued in the Supreme Court? Oh, wow. I don't know. <laughs> it was Alfred Dunhill of London against Republic of Cuba, a case dealing with Cuba's nationalization um, of cigar manufacturers. And he argued this while he was the head of the Office of Legal Counsel. You know, I think I saw some reference to this case recently, um, but I, 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 I did not recall that. Okay. Next question. Which of these musicians did Justice Scalia not cite in one of his opinions? George Bizet, Cole Porter, Frank Sinatra, Leonard Bernstein, or Stephen Sondheim? Well, I know he cited two, three, and five. Sorry, who was that first one? George Bizet. Um, okay, and the fourth one was? Leonard Bernstein. I'll say Leonard Bernstein. That is not correct. Ah. Now, unless my intel is wrong, he never cited Frank Sinatra. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I'm sure I, it seemed like such an obvious one. I didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't think enough about that. But apparently Sinatra wrote a letter to Justice Scalia shortly after he was confirmed to the court complaining about our libel laws and saying they're unfair. <laughs> and I know um, Justice Scalia really enjoyed uh, meeting Frank Sinatra at uh, one of these Italian-American dinners. So, okay, I'm all for two. This is, this is, this is not going well. <laughs> Um, number three, which Christmas carol did Justice Scalia most enjoy singing at the Supreme Court's annual Christmas party? All these music questions. Music is definitely not my strength. <laughs> There's not an A, B, C, or D here? <laughs> nope. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, I tell you, it's not Silent Night. Um, it references the Feast of Stephen. Oh, good King Wenceslas then. At least I knew that. Okay. Yes. And so. That's a helpful hint. Thank you. As background, he would get annoyed that most songbooks listed one of the lyrics as, Mark my footsteps, my good page. Um, apparently he would rant, It's not my good page. That's wrong. It's Mark my footsteps, good, my page. Uh-huh. <laughs> Next question Justice Scalia was the first justice to use this Yiddish word in a Supreme Court opinion. Chutzpah. That is correct. I believe he's the only justice, or maybe Justice Kagan used it in the last last year or so. Um, but yes, chutzpah. Yes, this was in National Endowment for the Arts versus Finley, a case dealing with the interaction between government funding and free speech. Next question. How many Scalia grandchildren are there? Well, there are 38 at last count, but gosh, let me think if there have been any more since then. Uh, I'm going to go with 38. Um, 39. Ah, yes. so you're missing, missing one recent one. <laughs> yes, yes. I should, I, should have get, I should have bet on that. Darn. <laughs> That's enough for a couple Supreme Court benches. <laughs> yes. Um, what was Justice Scalia's favorite professional soccer team? I don't think he had a, uh, a favorite professional soccer team. But if he did, I suppose it must have been an Italian one. So, uh, uh, but, but uh, boy, if you're going to... To ask me a question involving sports and then have it be about soccer is, is really cruel. Uh, I will say whatever the team from Milan is. Well, we'll skip. We'll uh, accept your original answer. So this is a trick question because Justice Scalia did not like soccer. Okay, that's that. That comports with, with the, the justice I knew. So. One final question: 
What was Justice Scalia's favorite pizza topping? I know that one very well. Anchovies. I had anchovy pizza with them any number of times at the old AV Ristorante. And uh, while some of us were reluctant to taste the hairy fish initially, it was actually quite good. <laughs> that is correct. Well, I think you did a pretty good job, Ed, and thanks so much for joining us. And thanks for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please leave us a review if you enjoy listening. Please also follow us on Twitter at SCOTUS101. You can email us at scotus101 at heritage.org with questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes.